Our Old Testament reading today is from Judges 2, 16 through 18. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they didn't listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Well, sometimes I sit in church and because I'm the one who gets up to preach most Sundays, I'm like, okay, you know, A, now B, now C, now D. Okay, it's almost time for me to get up. Let's, let's do this. And I have to remind myself that um, there is a sort of the ritual of, every, of the things we do every Sunday. And I think if we're not careful, and I'm speaking about myself too, we may sort of like at times think, why do we do this again? Like, why do we show up on Sundays and sort of like go through this sort of this repetitive action of, you know, prayer, uh, uh, some liturgy, a couple songs, and a sermon. But, you know, our hearts are deeply shaped by habits. And you could call those habits liturgies. You have liturgies of your daily life. You get up, you have your coffee, maybe you turn on the news, you get a little, you know, news brief before you walk out the door and do your thing. And those are sort of what we might call cultural liturgies, sort of the habits and rhythms of our daily life that shape us. And so what we do here on Sunday morning is they're habits that shape us. They're habits that form us, that inform us. And when we walk away on a Sunday morning, we may not always be able to discern, okay, this is how directly I have been changed today. Maybe not five minutes after the church service is over, but something during that week or that month will come up that will sort of bring up to the surface something that has been deposited in us by these rhythms and these habits and these liturgies, whether it's a song we sang. And by the way, they say that you know, people will remember a song uh, more than they even remember a sermon. Or the prayer we prayed or the liturgy or a question from the catechism. These are all things that sort of shape our hearts and form us in a way that the aggregate over a very long period of time radically transform us. We may not always have a single church service where we walk away during that one service and say, I've been changed forever by the last hour and 15 minutes. But over time, just like habits in your daily life change you, right? Something you do over a very long period of time. Well, the truth is that that's how what we do here also functions. So we are um, continuing in our series called Misquoted Explaining. Can we get the graphic for a minute? Explaining the Bible's most misused verses. And uh, I think we're on our fifth or sixth sermon, and we've been exploring how as a culture we, we misuse certain verses that the culture takes. This morning we're talking about what may be the most famous misused verse of the verses that the culture takes, and that's judge not from Matthew 7. 
The other day, I purchased an online membership to a local gym around the corner from my house, and it was 10 bucks a month, and nowadays, you know, you can do that. You can, you know, buy a membership before you even show up, and um, 10 bucks a month, I thought, you can't go wrong with a gym membership for $10 a month. Gyms are pretty much the same, you know, and uh, this particular gym, gym bills itself as the judgment-free zone. Some of you know what I'm talking about. In other words, supposedly it's a place where it doesn't matter, you know, how you look or how, where you are on the spectrum of sort of in-shapeness, right? Like, come one, come all, there's no judgment here. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. And... Before I ever showed up to my first workout, someone told me about something called uh, the lunk alarm. And for those of you who aren't familiar, maybe you have a membership at this place, the lunk alarm is this sort of like light on the wall. And it's an alarm that goes off if you're behaving badly at the gym. And bad behavior is determined to be grunting, slamming your weights, wearing a bodybuilding tank top, or drinking out of a gallon water jug. That's a picture of the actual alarm on the wall above the weight rack, the lunk alarm. And by the way, the definition of a lunk is like a stupid person, right? So they're defining it this way. So the other morning I go for the very first time to the judgment-free zone. That's not the name of the gym, but that's their motto. And I go for the first time, and in the middle of a set of, you know, dumbbell curls, you know, at 6.30 in the morning, I start heavy breathing, and I'm like, Man, I got paranoid. Because as I'm breathing, I'm worried, like, does it sound like I'm grunting? And when I was finished with my set, I, you know, I set the weight down like it was like an atomic bomb or something, because I didn't want it to make any noise, like, you know, clanging my dumbbells. And, you know, um, and I like drinking out of a gallon water jug. And suddenly, I felt judged by the judgment-free zone. And I came home and I told Maribel, I don't think I'm ever going back to that place. <laughs> it was a great irony. I felt judged by the place. What they had essentially done in their efforts to, you know, eliminate people from feeling judged is to set down a standard of behavior that if you violate, you'll be judged by. The irony, right? At the end of the day, somebody's getting judged at the judgment-free zone. And this is sort of the prevailing mindset of our age, which says, you don't have a right to judge me, and if I think you're judging me, I'm going to judge you. We don't want to be judged by anyone. We get that, right? We don't want to stand under the judgment of someone else, but we want the right to judge. We don't want anybody judging us. Don't judge me. But... I have a right to judge you. I mean, I say it, but I'm going to act like it. So that's, how, that's where our culture is. That's the prevailing mindset of our culture. We don't want people judging us, but we want the right to judge others.
And there's another irony about this whole thing regarding judgment is that as we have become less and less of a religious society, do you think we've become less judgmental? Well, of course not. We just change the things we judge people about now. So now that we've, oh goody, we've vanquished our culture from all the religious hypocrites. We live in a judgment-free society. Hit the lunk alarm. Because it's just not true. We judge people for different reasons. That's what's happened. We just changed what we judge people over. You know, we're told over and over again that if we become more of a secular culture, we won't have these sort of high moral standards that make us judge one another. But it's not true. We've just switched why we judge people. Here's some examples, okay, of how our secular culture today, less religious than we've ever been as a society, how we judge people. We judge people over the food we eat. We have ethically sourced coffee beans and things like that, which means that if you don't eat or drink from these ethically sourced foods, that somehow you're being unethical. And maybe it's true. Maybe that they pay a higher wage to the farmers that in Colombia or whatever the deal may be, but the point is someone's getting judged. It is a judgment call. It is a sort of moral statement. Millennials are 65% more likely to pay for foods or drinks that have on the label ethically sourced, which may explain why they're always broke. <laughs> Little opinion coming out here from Jordan. But it implies a sort of moral superiority, doesn't it? There are ethically sourced clothing, organic recycled cotton, and you can pay more for that. Interesting, there's a price for your, you know, virtuosity, right? There's a price for being ethical. And don't even get me started on my friends from childhood who I have on in social media who are fundamentalist vegans, who... Uh, judge their non-vegan friends to be monsters who are destroying our society. Look, you're vegan, knock yourself out. It's great. You know, with choice, choice for your own health, vegetarian, vegan, you know, gluten-free, that's great. But like, again, it's just another thing to judge others by, not all, but some, not all, but some, you know, it's like the fundamentalist vegans. I mean, every post is about how horrible everyone on the planet who eats meat is. I mean, it's crazy. It's hyper-preachy, self-righteous, judgmental. And it has nothing to do with religion at all, but it's become a kind of religion. And because the point is the point, we're wired that way. We're hardwired that way. So you can vanquish Christianity, you can vanquish any moral system, but you will replace it with another moral system a grid and lens by which you judge other people around you. And here's the deal. In some ways, as I said a minute ago, we're kind of hardwired to do this. We're hardwired to sort of virtue signal and say this is what is moral and anyone who doesn't do it is not moral. And it doesn't, I mean, over anything. We're, we're sort of 
hardwired to do that. Well, look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. Let's read the statement, judge not, in context. Judge not, Jesus says, that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure, or like the measuring rod you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye? But you don't notice the log that's in your eye. It's a scene, an illustration from the carpenter's shop, right? Carpenters working together, pieces of sawdust or a splinter in your eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye where, when there is a log in your own? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. A little study of the word judge used here is the Greek word krino, and it has different ways to define it. And one way to define the word judge is just decision. It's the word decision. In other words, we use our judgment to make decisions, and some of those decisions are completely benign. Like, hon, I don't think that that mustard yellow couch will go in the living room with the blue carpet or the green carpet or whatever. You just, it's, we're just making a judgment there. Right? It's a judgment about decorating. And so in some ways, we could use the word judgment, and the, word, the Greek word here, krino, can be used that way. We would say that you know, there's a reason why there's a limit on how much alcohol you can have and still drive, because your what is impaired. Your judgment's impaired. And by that, we mean you may not fully be able to assess how much distance there is between your car and the car in front of you traveling at a certain speed, right? So that's one way we use the word judgment. Decisions we make based on judgment, discernment. And those are decisions that require judgment, and it doesn't appear that that's what Jesus is talking about. The word krino can also mean being critical, and there are people who are in the habit of criticizing everything and anything. And you know people like that, don't you? They are hypercritical people, and boy, they just love offering their opinion. Right? And they, you know, they, if they've got an opinion on the matter, you're going to hear it. And for some reason, they think that they've been commissioned from on high to tell you about not only yourself, but everything in our culture that's wrong. And there is a job for these people. They're called movie critics. I'm, I'm joking, but like <clears throat> the most useless website in the world is Rotten Tomatoes. Who, whoever goes on Rotten Tomatoes to, to look at movie reviews. I found that almost every movie that Rotten Tomatoes says is good, I think is bad. And almost every movie they say is bad, I think is good. I mean, there's some exceptions. There's, there's times where it lines up. I was particularly offended when they took aim at one of my favorite movies with a low score. <laughs> You're supposed to say, which movie, Jordan? <laughs> it's the movie The Edge with Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin from like 1995 or six. I've seen it like 30 times. It's an excellent movie, The Edge. Go home and watch it. 
It's excellent. No? And no, no one does. See? No one knows that movie. I cannot believe it. It's one of the best movies ever. And Rotten Tomatoes, you know, they gave it a thumbs down. So the idea of being critical gets closer to the meaning Jesus is talking about. But when Jesus says, judge not, he's thinking of people with strong opinions. But their opinions cause them to condemn other people. The, the Greek lexicon, which is a way of sort of looking up definitions of Greek words, define the word judge in the context here Jesus is using this way. It is an unauthorized use of, of, unauthorized use of judicial authority. So when Jesus says judge not, what he's really saying is don't condemn other people. And I'm going to explain something that a lot of us don't, I don't think I knew this before I studied this passage this week. Judging is not exactly, in the popular way we use it, the same thing as condemning. And here's the difference. In the ancient world, if you called out the sin of someone during ancient Israel, the law of Moses, it could get them killed. Certain sins had punishments in ancient Israel that brought death. And so it wasn't, it wasn't just something to say, don't identify that someone has committed a sin. Jesus is saying, don't condemn other people or don't point out other people's faults in a way that where you essentially have become judge, jury, and executioner. And there's a perfect example of this in the New Testament in John 7. It's the story of the woman taken in adultery. And this woman is caught in the act of adultery Sounds like a setup to me, but she's caught, and she is dragged before Jesus, thrown on the ground, and there is a group of men standing with stones. Now, they wanted to ensnare and entrap Jesus because they hated Jesus, and they knew that there was sort of a conundrum Jesus had. The law of Moses, the ancient law of Moses given to Mount Sinai said that adulterers should be stoned to death, but as the Jews in the first century were living under the Roman Empire, they did not have permission to carry out executions. Only the Romans could do that. So they put to Jesus, they say, this is what the law of Moses says, what do you say? In other words, if this woman gets stoned, we can blame him and get him killed by the Romans. And Jesus knows their heart. He knows what they're up to. And Jesus gives this famous line. And what is the famous line that Jesus gives? Yeah. Let the one without sin cast the first stone. And it's become famous for a good reason. I think the modern version of it is something like, you know, people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones or something. That's sort of the, the modern version of that. But... You get the gist of it. What's interesting about this story and about this saying is Jesus doesn't say, guys, 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 we don't stone people. Like, are you crazy? What he says is, let's do it. Whoever has no sin, throw the first stone. Go for it. And the Bible says that as they, you know, have a moment of conscience, right? One by one, they drop their stones and they leave, right? 
It wasn't that they weren't qualified to assess that she had committed adultery. So in our culture, we would say, they didn't even have a right to call her an adulterer, which is not apparently what Jesus has a problem with. What Jesus has a problem with is that they want to carry out punishment. And this is, I think, the key to understanding Jesus' words, don't judge or judge not. It's not that we can't make observations based on our faculties of sort of reason and judgment and discernment to say, yeah, that person murders someone. Like, that's bad. Right? Our culture would say, no, you can't even say that. You cannot even say that someone has done something wrong because you're judging. You cannot even offer an opinion. But in Jesus' mind, the word has connotations of condemning somebody or carrying out a punishment on them or sort of sentencing them to punishment. And so it's the idea, don't condemn people. For with the spirit or the attitude or the measure that you have sort of meted out your condemnation, it will be meted out again to you. As I said a minute ago, there were consequences in the ancient world for condemning someone and could get them killed. And today, there are places in the world where that's still true. Uh, in certain Muslim countries, if you accuse someone of blasphemy, of blaspheming Muhammad of the Quran, I mean, you're dead. Um, in 2019, Pakistan awarded the death penalty to 584 people, and 17 of those people were for blasphemy. 17 executions in 2019 were um, carried out against um, citizens of Pakistan for blasphemy, and it's reported that the vast majority of blasphemy accusations are just personal gripes. I don't like you, we had a business deal it went sour, so I'm going to report to the authorities that you blasphemed the Quran and get you killed. And it happens all the time. So in Jesus' mind, judging somebody is not just offering an opinion, but it carries the possibility of somebody, you know, possibly um, being killed or executed. Now, here's one of the big takeaways for this morning, okay? Jesus cares about justice, but... It isn't just carrying out the law, it's rooting out the unfair application of the law. Think back to the story in John 7. Here's this woman who is highlighted for a sin by a bunch of other people who themselves, if everyone knew their sins, would have been just as possibly guilty and worthy of being stoned. And so what Jesus cares about is, no, 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 something, this isn't right. Something's not right here. This is an unfair application of the law of Moses. I'm not going to stand for it. I have a friend who's a retired police officer, and he told me, he said, if at the beginning of his shift, he pulled someone over for speeding and he let that person go, he would not give out any speeding tickets for the rest of the day. He would let everyone off with a warning. He said, if though at the beginning of the day he pulled someone over and gave them a ticket, he was given people tickets all day long. And he said it was his way of fairly meeting out the law. Because after all, why would it be right to let this person go who sped and then give this person a ticket? He's a brother in Christ. And for him, it was this idea that he didn't want to be partial. If he was going to show mercy that day, it was showing mercy to everybody. Everybody got off with a warning. You know, if he was handing out tickets, everybody got a ticket. 
And I like that because it appreciates this idea of unfair application of the law. And this is what I think that we don't get about God's patience and mercy. We don't understand this idea that God is holding back his wrath. And it's not just from the bad people. We ask questions like, why does God allow evil in the world? And we get that question. We see things that we think are evil, and it causes us at times our hearts to wrestle with the goodness of God. Why would God allow this or that? And I want to say, number one, right out the gate, I think God does mitigate evil in the world. The world is not as bad as it could be. Let's admit it. Vast majority of days, you wake up, you get dressed, you go about your business. That is an incredible act of God's love and kindness to all of us. The world is actually getting less violent, although the internet may not have you believe that, because if, if there's a bomb explosion in Yemen, you see it on your phone five minutes later, but the truth is that the world has been gradually getting less and less vi violent for decades. The world is, by some estimates, less violent than it ever has been. There is actually less poverty, poverty than there ever has been. Doesn't mean we shouldn't pay attention to it. There is less star starving people in the world than there ever has been. There, there is less war in the world today than there ever has been in human history. <clears throat> but when we ask questions like, why does God allow evil in the world? There's a part of me that imagines God saying, oh, you want me to wipe out evil in the world? Okay, how shall I kill you? Because we're evil. <laughs> we, if evil's not out there, we have sin in our hearts. We perpetuate evil. We may not think our sins are as bad as their sins, but in God's mind, God is perfectly holy, and God's saying, what? If I'm rooting out all evil, you're on the list too. I'm going to wipe you out too, but God is holding back. And I think this gets behind the spirit of what we're talking about this morning. We commit sin as well. And it makes us have to be mindful and think twice about condemning other people. Look at what Paul says to the Romans, Romans 2 and 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. It's the idea that we are worthy of God's judgment as well. And we don't condemn the world, not because the world doesn't deserve to be condemned, but according to the gospel, the world is already condemned. It already stands condemned. And what the world needs is not more condemnation, but the gospel. I mean, it's almost like God is saying, yo, like, let me, don't tell me how to do my job, okay? Like, I'll, I'll do the condemning, okay? You, you preach the gospel. Look at what it says, this famous verse that follows John 3.16. This is John 3.17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Why didn't God send his son into the world to condemn the world? Because the world already stands condemned. It doesn't need us to heap and pile on more of it. 
In fact, we're all under condemnation without the gospel. There are no good people. There are only sinners who are lost, and then there's sinners who are saved by grace. That's it. And because we're all sinners, it means that I may, I may be on the other side of God's grace because of the gospel, but I'm a sinner too, which means I don't have any right condemning a sinner over here who maybe just a few days or months or years ago, I was here. And if I'm over here, it was only by God's grace, but not because I'm such a good person. It is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is why people need to hear it. That God sent his son into the world to save the world. That the cross of Jesus Christ atones for our sins. And it is only through that sacrificial atonement that we're made right with God. What people need is the gospel, not condemnation. So what is Jesus really addressing then in the statement, judge not? Well, he's addressing hypocrisy. Right? First, you hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye and you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And Jesus is warning against the tendency that we all have to be hypocritically self-righteous. This is why I don't like cancel culture. It's a bunch of sinners telling other sinners, you're sinners. It's a bunch of people who have problems and faults and hidden bad things that they do telling other people whose faults have been exposed, you're bad. I don't like it. I don't like it. Even if it's true, even if someone has done something wrong, it's a bunch of people pretending that they're righteous. Online, whether it's, I mean, it's usually an 18-year-old in their mom's basement on Twitter. But, like, <laughs> that's why I don't like it. Because it goes against Jesus' words. Judge not, lest you be judged. For with the same measure, and that's the thing, is everyone right now who's saying this person should be fired, oh, it's coming back around. Oh, it's coming back around. Because you're sowing seeds of condemnation, and one day those seeds are going to bring a harvest judging people, calling for their firing and resignation. Maybe people do need to be confronted, but the sort of harshness with which we do it and the glib gleeness. Want to see this person lose their job or their life destroyed. We just, we just can't wait. The power, we've typed a few words and you know, the career is over. So why do we do it? Why do we judge people? Why do we want to see people be brought down for their shortcomings and their sins? Well, simply put, it just feels good not to be, it feels good for the spotlight to be on someone else, not you. That's part of it, right? It's like, yeah, don't, don't look at me. Ooh, 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 bad, 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 bad. While we, you know, while we do our secret sins, we want the spotlight on someone else. So that's part of why we do it. It's a sinful motivation. We don't want anyone shining the light on our secrets. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, over there, over there. So that's part of why we do it. Another reason why we do it is self-righteous people often lack the ability to confront their own faults. So some people honestly believe that they don't do anything, that they are good. They honestly believe, no, I'm 
What is, the, what is there to look at with me? I'm, I'm, sque- I'm squeaky clean. They lack this ability to acknowledge their own shortcomings, their own faults, and when they're confronted, they get defensive. Now, we all kind of do that, some more than others. Self-righteous people, they judge other people by their actions, and, but they judge themselves by their intentions. So someone says, well, you do the same thing. Well, that's not what I meant to do. What happened was, and they explain, right? So we judge people with a harsher standard And Jesus is saying, that harsh standard you're judging others by, I will judge you by. So you don't get off the hook just because you said, no, well, that's not, yes, I ended up doing X, but it wasn't like that. It wasn't like them. That's not the way it works. We never use the same measuring rod to judge ourselves. But what does Jesus say? For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged And the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Same measuring stick you use to judge others, God will measure, use that stick to measure your faults. Are you quick to point out someone's flaws? Think about it. Just ask yourself that question for a moment. Am I that person? Am I I critical? You know? Am I the person who just can't wait to point out other people's flaws? Or to comment so other people can see that I've got an opinion about someone who's done something wrong. Do you revel in giving scathing critique? You know, you enjoy it, you revel in it. Do I? It's a good question to ask ourselves. The judgment you sow is the judgment you'll reap. Look at what James, the brother of Jesus, writes. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. God is merciful to the merciful. But God's judgment is without mercy to those who don't show any mercy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? That's Jesus' brother who wrote that, James. Now, let me flip the coin up, okay? We've got a few minutes left, but let me just sort of like turn it around. Does this mean we absolutely cannot make any discerning, you know, statements or judgment calls on anything? Right? We we just have to say button lift no matter how, you know, no matter what's going on in the world around us, what somebody does or sort of circumstances around us, we just have to kind of like whistle past the graveyard? And the answer is no. We can identify God has given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us faculties of reason and understanding and discernment. And we, can, we can say, yeah, this is wrong, you know. But it's the way that we do it. It's the spirit behind our judgment that Jesus cares about. So here's a few rules for discernment. And I'm sure there's more, but here's just a couple, okay? Number one, Jesus instructs us to judge rightly. So it's not... Don't judge anything ever. It's judge the right way. John 7, 24. Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. And we would say today, you don't judge a book by its cover. Sometimes what is true does not match up with what you see with your eyes. 
And sometimes it takes a lot of investigation and discernment to really be able to make a, a right judgment. You gotta get to the bottom of a matter before offering your opinion. Don't jump to conclusions before investigating the facts. Use discernment, don't, don't rush into judgment. The media could, you know, the media outlets could take this advice. But their networks would shut down because you've gotta be the first one on the scene with an opinion, right? And now, what's happening a lot now is they're coming back, you know, a week later saying, actually, we were wrong. But everybody wants to be the first one out the gate with the news story, you know? If it bleeds, it leads, right? <laughs> we shouldn't be that way. We shouldn't rush into judgment. And what you'll find is when you slow down and are slow to judge and investigate something, maybe you heard something about a friend or a neighbor or a family member, a coworker, and everybody's rushing in and just hold back, just hold back. Because you're gonna look like the fool when it's proven that you've spoken too quickly or judge too harshly. You'll find that you have a much more tempered and nuanced opinion or judgment on a matter when you finally do weigh in because you've waited, right? Number two, avoid judging harshly. Look at what Titus says. Avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people, which means sometimes your judgment may be spot on but you can offer your judgment in a way that it's not harsh. And if your heart is right, whenever you do offer judgment, it's almost something you, you kind of don't want to do. And if, if God has truly called you to weigh in on an important matter, maybe to confront something, when you finally do deliver it, it's with gentleness, right? and courtesy. Now the assumption here is that the person knows they've done wrong, but even if they don't, God still requires us to exhibit gracious, patient, long-suffering. Galatians 6.1 says this, if anyone is caught in a transgression, right, caught committing a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. Uh, it's hard for people to, it's hard to hear your own faults. It's hard when someone confronts you about your own faults, but if they do it, and if you do it, if someone does it to you, in a spirit of gentleness, it's easier. Because the truth hurts, right? The truth hurts. And what does that always look like? It looks different in different situations. But I have had people confront me about my faults and my heart melted and broke because they did it in love. They were loving. So we should never be glib or gloat about another person's sins. And if we've been gentle and thoughtful, we just may win that person over for Christ. And we just may find that we've helped that person actually come to real repentance and confession where they're able to say, you know what, you're right. This is true. Would you pray for me? 
Lord, help me. And then finally, this is the last one. Remember this. This is something we have to remember. Any stance against sin will be seen as unloving by some. So there is a small, I don't know how small, there is a percentage of people that no matter how gentle you are, how gracious you are, how tempered and long-suffering you are, they're still going to hate what you have to say. And you can't help that. Nothing you can do about that. Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. I mean, who is more gracious, gentle, long-suffering in their delivery and confrontation of sin than Jesus? And they hated him for it. So you'll never fully escape the hate. In fact, you might be called hateful by pointing something out. I end on this note here because we shouldn't use the admonition to be slow to judge as a cloak for cowardice. Say, well, I'm just never, never going to say anything to anybody. Well, that's not, that's not the gospel either. That's not Jesus' instruction to us either. It is holding intention together, this sort of messy, hard thing of being loving, but also caring about what's right. About confronting people, but doing it in gentleness. And it's, there's a tension between that. It's not easy to do. It requires you to be uncomfortable, to pray, to go through the sort of you know, sour feeling in your stomach of, is this the right time? Oh, Lord, guide me, help me. Maybe, no, I want to talk to them, but I didn't think it was the right time. Or, or you, know, you know, I've just, right? Like God called. I think Jesus went through that. Why was Jesus always praying? Why was he always disappeared into the mountainside to pray? I think because Jesus knew he was going to be saying things to people that was going to shatter their world and make them furious. And he was always praying, I think, one of the things he was praying about was how to say what he had to say. Sometimes we have to judge. No matter how rightly or justly our discernment, people who are in darkness and want to stay in darkness won't hear it. So that's the meaning to judge not, lest you be judged. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you now for the word of truth from our Savior Jesus, who has mercy on us sinners. We were worthy of being condemned. Our sin um, grieves you, but you showed mercy and love for us, condemned sinners, by sending your son Jesus to take the penalty of our sin on the cross, the punishment that we so justly deserved, help us not to be hypocrites. Help us to give back out the grace and love we've received to others. And even when others are wrong, help us to long to deliver that confrontation of one's sin in a way that will help them and not hurt them, in a way that is gentle, patient, kind, and loving, that they might find repentance and come to you, O God. But help us not to be soft on sin, but help everything we do be guided by love in the spirit of Jesus our Lord who loved us. Amen.